You may be seated. You can turn with me in your Bibles to the prophet Hosea chapter 5. We continue our studies in the minor prophets. We're going to look at the entire chapter this evening, but I will read to chapter 6, verse 3, to set the context for us. One thing Hosea and 1 John share in common is the commentators can't decide how to split up the text. So uh, uh, some put verse 15 of chapter 5 with 6, but we'll do verse 15 uh, tonight. So uh, Hosea chapter 5, we'll begin reading at verse 1. Hear this, O priests. Take heed, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. For yours is the judgment. Because you've been a snare to Mizpah and a net spread on Tabor, the revolters are deeply involved in slaughter, though I rebuke them all. I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you commit harlotry. Israel is defiled. They do not direct their deeds toward turning to their God, for the spirit of harlotry is in their midst, and they do not know the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Therefore, Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah also stumbles with them. With their flocks and herds, they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them. They have dealt treacherously with the Lord, for they have begotten pagan children. Now a new moon shall devour them and their heritage. Blow the ram's horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Cry aloud at Beth-Avon. Look behind you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke. Among the tribes of Israel I make known what is sure." The princes of Judah are like those who remove a landmark. I will pour out my wrath on them like water. Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment because he willingly walked by human precept. Therefore, I will be to Ephraim like a moth and to the house of Judah like rottenness. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jerob. Yet he cannot cure you nor heal you of your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim. And like a young lion to the house of Judah, I, even I, will tear them and go away. I will take them away and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face and in their affliction they will earnestly seek me. Come and let us return to the Lord for he is torn, but he will heal us. He is stricken, but he will blind us up, bind us up. For two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain to the earth. Amen. Well, let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we know that our sin deserves everlasting punishment forever. And yet we still truly do not know how much we owe for what Christ has done for us. And so tonight, oh, Lord, help us to understand the seriousness of sin all the more. As you warn Israel about coming judgment, as you warn Israel and remind them of their treachery and their wickedness when it comes to worship, again, we know that if it was not for Christ, we know that we would deserve everlasting damnation forever. And yet we are thankful for our Christ. Thank you that you have broken us. Thank you that you've shown us our sin. Thank you that you've given us new hearts. Thank you that you've given your people the gift of repentance. And we are also thankful that you give us the gift of faith and many other gifts as well. We know that salvation is of you. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot save others. Yet you are pleased to work 
You are pleased to save sinners and call them and give them new life. And we pray that that would be the case this evening. Please save anyone today who does not know you. And for your saints, please strengthen us. Please encourage us. Please uplift us. Please rebuke us as we often need to hear rebukes. And thank you that you are a loving father who loves us. One who we can come to day by day with prayer and supplication. But you are also a loving father who disciplines us. And we thank you that you do so. You show us where there is remaining corruption. And you remind us again of where we can go. And that is to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we ask you to be with us now by your spirit. Give us illumination from on high to better understand what your word says. These uh, texts are difficult for us to understand. But help us, we pray. And we pray that you be honored and glorified. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, one profoundly undervalued character trait that we've seen throughout the book of Hosea is that character trait of self-awareness. Most people lack that ability to recognize when they are wrong, to recognize when they might be saying something uh, that they themselves engage in. Often we see self-awareness or a lack of it manifest in some sort of blatant hypocrisy. One of my favorites is when climate change politicians tell us that we need to stop driving our cars or stop doing this while they jet set across the world and just say, buy electric car, I drive this car, that sort of thing. Don't worry about gas when they don't realize peasants like us uh, have to use gas to get around this world. There is a blatant lack of self-awareness. And certainly Israel here in Hosea had a uh, lack of spiritual awareness. Their worship was debased, their political and societal life corrupt, and yet they did not understand why the Lord is bringing judgment upon them. They think everything's okay. We can worship Baal. We can worship Yahweh side by side. Why is God going to bring judgment upon us? They cannot see what is going on. It shows how sin hardens, how sin blinds, and how sin does desensitize. And so God then comes and reminds them. He rebukes them. He tells them judgment is Coming. Now, remember, the prophet Hosea is prophesying during the 8th century. He is prophesying to the northern kingdom. If you remember from a couple weeks or several weeks ago, this is during the time of that divided kingdom. So Israel is in civil conflict. There is Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And so Hosea is primarily to that northern kingdom with some focus on Judah as well, some southern application. If you remember, Jerusalem was the place of worship. That was where Israel was supposed to go when they were supposed to worship Yahweh at the appointed times that he set. Well, the northern kingdom cannot do that. And so when you see all the kings in the northern kingdom, none of them do what is right in the sight of the Lord. It all has to do with worship. When they, whether they do evil or good is connected to with the worship under old covenant Israel. And so the message of the entire book really is Hosea's marriage, what we see in chapters one through three, what Yahweh is going to do to that adulterous, wayward wife, both in judgment, but also there is the comfort of restoration. There are some harsh things that Yahweh has to say to his wandering wife, but yet there's also some comforting reminders of what Yahweh is going to do to undeserving people. And then the section that we are in with chapter 5, it goes from chapters 4 through 6, or 4 through 6, 3, waiting for repentance. 
Yahweh has been very long suffering with the people of God. Eventually is going to send the northern kingdom into captivity by Assyria in 722 BC. The southern kingdom shall go in 586 under Babylon. But God is very patient with them. Even though night after night, week after week, day after day, they commit adultery against the Lord God most high. And so we see some oracles of doom uh, in chapters four and five, but there is some oracles of hope as well when we come to the end of chapter five and chapter six. But the problem that we see in chapter five is when one cannot see their spiritual adultery, when one cannot see the reason for Yahweh's judgment. Again, Israel was worshiping the Baals with Yahweh. It's syncretism. It's blending different religions. It's blending different ways of worship together. Yahweh requires exclusive worship. Yahweh requires exclusive allegiance. He was not meant to be worshipped alongside the other Baals, uh, by the Baals and other gods as well from the other nations. And Israel was doing that because they wanted favor. They saw the pagans worship their God. They did these rituals. That God seemed to give them certain things. So let's do that. They were doing everything they could. They're mercenaries. They want to get something from the gods for what they perceive is their benefit. And so Yahweh warns them. Yahweh's reminding them, but he's also reminding them that they are blind in their ways. It shows the sad effect that sin can have how it desensitizes, how it blinds, how it makes one ignorant. And so in chapter five, we see Hosea prophesying about Israel's lack of ability to see. We see him prophesying about Israel's spiritual defilement and political downfall as a result of that defilement. And the sad reality is they cannot see why. So in reality today, it's lessons in the hardening effect of sin. That should have been my title. I struggled to think of a title before I sent it out on Friday, but that should have been the title. Lessons in the hardening effect of sin. And we'll look at this under two headings this evening. First of all, we'll see spiritual defilement, verses 1 through 7. Then secondly, we'll see political downfall in verses 8 through 15. So spiritual defilement, verses 1 through 7, then political uh, downfall in verses 8 through 15. So let's first look at spiritual defilement in verses 1 through 7. Spiritual defilement. And as we consider the context, chapter 4 speaks about the insanity of idolatry. Israel is worshiping an idol. Israel has joined themselves to that idol. Israel is playing the harlot with that idol. And Hosea calls them to account and tells them that what you're doing is stupidity. He says in verse 12, my people ask counsel from their wooden idols. They look ridiculous. They're talking to wood. They're talking to something that they made. They look absolutely insane as they worship their idols. And that's what sin is, isn't it? Sin brings insanity. Sin sin brings madness. Sin brings sadness into this world. And we see that with Israel, the people of God, those to whom God had brought out of the land of Egypt. God had given them the good land. And now what are they doing? Let's just do what all the other nations do. They have forgotten their Lord God. And so the literary context, we see Israel's idolatry, but we also must recognize some important historical facts with respect to where we are 
in Hosea chapter 5. Now, typically, Hosea has, has probably prophesied for 80 years. He has a ministry of 80 years. So he sees a lot of things happen during those 80 years. And chapters 1 through 3 is probably when, uh, well, it's when he starts prophesying. It's during the reign of Jeroboam II. And things are pretty good under Jeroboam II when it comes to uh, the political uh, status of that time. There's peace, there's riches, there's prosperity. Things seem to be going well. There's some stability in Israel under Jeroboam II. When he dies, there's a lot of instability. And so perhaps we're under Menahem. Uh, could be under his reign or under Pekah or Pekah, however you want to say that. Uh, they're, they're both found in 2 Kings chapter 15. Perhaps it is under the reign of Menahem, and hopefully uh, we can see some things why uh, as we go through. So uh, uh, history has moved forward. There's instability going on. Uh, and so here comes Yahweh. Here comes Hosea to warn the people about impending Judgment And notice in verses 1 through 3, we see what the nation needs to hear. Yahweh knows what they're doing. <laughs> Yahweh sees what's going on. They can't hide from the high king of heaven. He is the one who is omniscient and knows everything that is taking place. And so we see judgment on the whole nation in verse 1. Hear this, O priests. Take heed, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. It's describing all, uh, all uh, different um, statuses, all different sectors of the people of Israel. The priest, the spiritual side of things, the house of Israel, all of Israel as a whole, and the political side of things. Give ear, O house of the king. Now, we've seen him reference the people. We've seen him reference the priests. This is the first time he references the king. Now, remember, the priests who are supposed to be of Levi, were supposed to guide the people when it comes to the things of God and guide the people when it comes to things of worship. The same thing is true of the kings. Deuteronomy chapter 17, the king was supposed to what? Meditate upon the law of God day and night. He was supposed to know it. He was supposed to be like, the, like, uh, like on the back of his hand. It was supposed to be memorized in his mind that he might know how to lead the people. And as we see throughout Kings and Chronicles, how are the kings determined? Uh, how is their reign determined? Whether they do good or evil, it is with respect to the law of God most High. And whether Israel would do good or right depended upon that very king and depended upon their worship. So now the king is in view here. The kings are mentioned here. And certainly the priests should have been leading the people as well. And so he calls forth, hear this, take heed, give ear. Why? For yours is the judgment. Not that judgment has been entrusted to you, but judgment is coming upon you. Judgment shall come upon you very swiftly. The whole nation is defiled and the whole nation will be judged. They violated the, the old covenant. They violated the book of Deuteronomy. They went after other gods, especially in worship. And God is a God of truth. God is a God who does what he says. And according to the terms of the old covenant, he said, if you don't do what I say, curse shall come upon you. And what is Yahweh warning here through Hosea? Curse is going to come upon 
you. You should have known this. You should have understand, understood this Israel, for yours is the judgment. He goes on to explain further uh, the reason for this judgment. Because you've been a snare to Mizpah and a spread on a net spread on Tabor. Probably those in view here with the snaring and the net spreading are the priests. The priests were supposed to guide the people in righteousness. But instead, they're like a hunter who sets up a trap, catches the bird and then eats it. That is what they are like. That is what false worship is like. They are the blind leading the blind. They've ensnared the people. They've captured the people. The people certainly should have known better, but leadership should have been leading the people well. They should have taught the people concerning the things of God, and yet they did not. They are like a snare. They are ones who set a snare at Mizpah and a net spread on Tabor. No idea why Mizpah and Tabor are mentioned. It is probably because wicked worship happened on those mountains. It is probably because it was a place where the people went to engage in sacrifice rather than the place that God had said. Remember in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 12, Yahweh says you will offer sacrifices where? At the place I choose, not anywhere else. And so what do the people think they can do? Well, I can just do more. Why can't I worship God on this mountain instead of the one that he said? But Yahweh requires obedience rather than sacrifice. And so the people or the, the priests have been a snare to the people and the people in general have been involved, not just in wicked worship, uh, but they've been involved in bloodshed as well. We've seen in chapter four, there is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land by swearing and lying and killing and stealing and committing adultery. They break all restraint with bloodshed upon bloodshed. Verse two of chapter five, the revolters are deeply involved in slaughter. It's not just a spirit of adultery. It's not just a, sp a spirit of spiritual adultery, but there is a spirit of bloodshed as well. Man is only concerned with himself, and we see it bubbling over in, the, uh, in and among the people of God. The rebels are deeply involved in this slaughter. Now, remember, Israel is a theocracy. Their religious life and their city life are much more in interconnected than living in Canada. You want to know why? Because Canada is not a theocracy, is it? We believe in justice. We believe in you know, punishing the guilty and protecting the innocent. But the, the, the country of God is the new heavens and new earth. And the expression of the country of God in this world is the church. That's why we are citizens of two kingdoms, dear brethren. I'm a citizen of Canada. We have those here are citizens of the United States. But hopefully we are all citizens of heaven, according to Philippians chapter 3. But Israel was much more interconnected because of the theocratic nature of what is going on. Their religious life affects their uh, city life much more. So the revolters are deeply involved in slaughter. And notice verse 2, though I rebuke them all. God has warned them. God has rebuked them. God has sent Elijah to them, the Tishbite, and they did not hear him. He sent Elisha to them, 
And yet the kings still worship the Baals. I mean, talk about guys who wouldn't be invited to how to build church conferences today because they were rejected. They brought, certainly the Lord was with them. The Lord aided them. There's some encouraging things that go on in the book of Kings with them. But by and large, none of the kings in Israel did what was right. They were rebuked. Israel was rebuked, and yet they did not listen. Sometimes people hear the rebuke. Stop doing this. Stop doing that thing. You need to stop engaging in that sin. But people don't stop in that sin. So God is going to send a greater awakening. God is going to send a more terrifying reminder of who he is in his justice. Though I rebuke them all. He goes on to say in chapter 3. Sorry, a chapter, uh, verse three of chapter five. I know Ephraim, and this is not a nice knowing. God knows what they're doing. God knows what they're engaging. They cannot hide from God. Israel is not hidden from me. From me. Remember, Ephraim is the dominant tribe in the north. Remember, there are ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. Ephraim is the dominant tribe, and. People typically follow what everybody else is doing, right? We all like to think we'd be different and we'd stand out from the crowd, but we're not like that. Ephraim does bad. Well, the rest of the tribes are going to do bad as well. Ephraim's the strongest. We'll just do what they say as well. God knows. I know them. I know Israel. They're what we, I see from them is not hidden from me. I know, O Ephraim, you commit adultery. Israel is defiled. He knows what they're doing. He sees their wicked worship. He sees their actual debauchery that they're engaging in. He sees the actual bloodshed that they are engaging in. God sees and knows all things. That's comforting and scary at the same time, uh, isn't it? God Almighty is omniscient. God Almighty is omnipresent. God sees and knows all things things. And Israel, they're just worshiping the Baals alongside Yahweh. Yahweh must love us because things seem to be going pretty well, at least under Jeroboam II. There's not threats from without. There's a time of peace and prosperity. You know, people assume peace is a sign from God that things are going well, right? Things are fine. God must be happy with what we're doing. Well, not under Hosea and under his ministry. For now, Ephraim, you commit adultery. Israel is defiled. And certainly the idea of defiling draws our attention back to the ritual uh, purity washings, unclean and clean, holy and unholy. Certainly the people under the Old Testament could be unclean ceremonially, uh, but they could also be unclean morally. And certainly it's far worse to be unclean morally, isn't it? To be unholy against the Lord God most high. God is a holy God. How is it that we can approach unto him? That's the whole point of the book of Leviticus, by the way. We approach by way of sacrifice. We walk with him according to the laws that he says. Or how do the old covenant people walk with him? Uh, We approach unto him by sacrifice and we walk with him or they walked with him according to that cleansing. Thanks be to God for the Lord Jesus Christ because we approach by his sacrifice and we walk according to his cleansing and we shall walk with him forever. But Israel, they are defiled. They have defiled the tabernacle. 
They have defiled themselves. They have brought defiling when it comes to the ceremonial things, and they brought defiling when it comes to the moral things. Their defiling is total, and Yahweh knows. It's going to be judgment upon that whole nation. They need to hear. Yahweh knows what's going on. But notice in verses 4 through 7, we see who Israel does not know. They think they know God, but in reality, their hearts are far from him. And it's expressed in their deeds. Verse 4, they do not direct their deeds toward turning to their God. They don't care. They don't even think about repenting. They don't even think about turning to Yahweh who brought them out of the land of Egypt, even after he warned them. Even after he's rebuked them, and even after they're sent into captivity, the old covenant people still do not get it. That's why we need a new covenant. That's why we need one who does what Israel could not do. That's why we need one who does what Adam could not do. That's why we need our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But Israel, they have a spirit of harlotry in their midst. It permeates them. Brethren, we struggle with sin. We struggle with remaining corruption. And that is part and parcel of this Christian world. But the hope is that that as we struggle with that, that those temptations die more and more. We hate it, but we love it because of remaining corruption. But we hate it because we're saved in the Lord Jesus Christ. But for them, it's among them. They just love it. They just want to engage in it. They try to do all they can to indulge in their sin. The spirit of harlotry is in their midst. They do not know the Lord. The Lord knows what they're doing, but they do not know the Lord. And that's the terrifying thing. They think they know the Lord. They think that what they're doing is right and uh, what they're doing shall appease the Lord God most high. They do not know, but the Lord himself knows all things. And one thing that's interesting in Revelation 2.18, Revelation 2.18 and following uh, the verses that follow, talking about the church of Thyatira, that corrupt church talks about how Jesus has eyes that are flaming, eyes that pierce and see. And one thing that it says in that section, Jesus is the searcher of hearts. Jesus himself is the one who sees all things, does he not? And that's in the context of a church, of a corrupt church, of a problematic church. Jesus sees all things. Jesus sees your heart. He sees your heart. Whoever I'm pointing to, Jesus sees my heart. He sees and knows our hearts. He searches all things. He knows all things. Now, thanks be to God if he's changed our hearts. Thanks be to God if he's given us new hearts. Thanks be to God that we are found in him. But Jesus searches his church as well to show who are the actual um, uh, wheat and who are the actual tares. He is the one who knows. He searches all things. And there are those who might think that they are Christ's, but they have not laid hold of him by faith. They do not know the Lord. Some of that will come up more in verses 6 and 7. But back to Israel, verse 5. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Therefore, Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Their sin is all encompassing. Their pride and arrogance show forth uh, before God most high that they are wicked and they do not know anything. Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity, but notice Judah joins the party. Judah also stumbles with them. There's some, been some recognition of Judah already, some positive things, but 
as things unfold in the southern kingdom, Hosea recognizes problems in the southern kingdom as well. Perhaps during the time of Ahaz, Ahaz was not a good king, was he? He was a wicked king. He was the one who's mentioned in Isaiah 7, speaking about uh, during that Emmanuel prophecy. Uh, he engaged in wickedness. So um, Hosea recognized that they're stumbling along with them as well. And they are engaging in spiritual ignorance, verses 6 and 7. With their flocks and herds, they seek they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them. There is this pagan assumption that it's about the volume of sacrifice. They bring their herds, they bring their flocks, they seek the Lord. McKay says many sacrifices were offered at great cost and many miles traveled on pilgrimage, pilgrimages to sanctuaries. This was all done because the people had adopted the perspective of Canaan that sheer volume of sacrifices would placate the deity and render their entreaties effective. It was based on what they did. I brought five goats, 10 goats, 25 goats, 100 goats. They're still trying to seek the Lord. They're still trying to go and find Yahweh, but they're doing it not out of faith, but out of their own desire to placate whatever misery they are enduring. They did not direct their deeds, or sorry, um, they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them. They are treacherous, verse 7. They have dealt treacherously with the Lord. They're thinking they love the Lord, but in fact, they are infatuated with Baal. They're more concerned with a false god rather than Yahweh, and they deal, that's why they deal treacherously. They deal connivingly. They deal in secret. They look perhaps like they love the Lord, but in reality, they are not. They have begot pagan children. They've raised their children, not in the fear and admonition of the Lord, but in the fear and the mercenary spirit of worshiping any God and every God possible to get what they wish. So they'll seek the Lord. They shall not find him. Then they're going to try a new moon and they shall be devoured and their heritage shall be removed. The new moon was perhaps like a special event, thinking they can find appeasement at this special event. I can't find Yahweh. He doesn't seem to listen. He doesn't seem to answer. Maybe, maybe we'll do this new moon instead. Maybe we'll appease him just by doing this very thing. We'll get our spiritual fix just this one time during the year, but it's not going to be what they think. A new moon shall devour them and their heritage. It's like those who think, I'm just going to get my spiritual fix at Christmas time. I'm going to come one time during the year and then I'm going to appease Yahweh that way. I'll appease God that way. It's all works based, isn't it? I, I, I made my appearance. Yahweh will recognize what, I'm, what I've done in that moment. Brethren, salvation is not based on what we do, but it's based and found in another, isn't it? Because we are terrible. Uh, we are sinful. We are awful. And we need someone to forgive us. And give us the strength that we need. Like Christmas, like Easter, that is what is in view here with the new moons. But thankfully, Yahweh does save. Thankfully, Yahweh is gracious and good. But one thing we do need to be aware of, dear brethren, is how hardening and desensitizing sin is. Someone who is not in Christ, they become blinded and hardened all the more. That's why we need God to open the eyes. 
I can't open their eyes. You can't open their eyes. God opens their eyes. Certainly we can preach the gospel to them. We can share the truth with them. We can plead with them. But God is the one who changes their hearts and lives because we don't know hearts. Only God does. And only God can change one's heart. We certainly see that if one persists in their sin, that blindness and hardness will only continue more and more. You see that with Pharaoh. He persisted and persisted and persisted and was hardened throughout his life. And what happens is the view of God loses the perception of his uniqueness. He isn't Baal. Worshiping him isn't the same as going to a movie or a rock concert. And one thing the people of God need to be aware of in our Christian life is we do not become desensitized to the things of God. You see, brethren, what's most important is to come and worship God most high, not to be saved, but because we have been saved, because we have been redeemed, because we have been changed. Shouldn't we want to come to the house of the Lord and sing praises to his name and worship him according to what his word says? It's unfortunate But you have gone through this. I have gone through this. Sometimes the people of God go through periods where the sensible countenance of God is removed. We are being desensitized to our own sin. We're not aware of our own sin. We're not aware of our own laziness, are we? Now, thankfully, God is good. He shakes us out of that slumber, doesn't he? Through something that we did not want to do. And he shows us our sin and there's mercy and forgiveness in Christ. Or if you come to church, hopefully there's something in the text that reminds you you're a wretch and you need the Lord Jesus Christ. Hopefully that happens every week, dear brother. And we try to bring in Christ. We try to, you know, uphold Christ. That is what you need. You need to be, you know, the Bible, the, the word of God is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, dear brethren. And you know what you need? You know what I need, dear brethren? We need the word of God. A lot of people like to say, if only the church did this, if only Christians did this, if only they had wonderful Easter services and wonderful Christmas services and a puppets, ponies and programs and all this. You know what we need? Faithful preaching and faithful people. That is it, dear brethren. Sometimes we want to farm out what Christ has entrusted to his church. What has he entrusted to his church? Matthew 28. Go, therefore... Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I command. That is the purpose of the church. What people need is not all these extra things. I'm not necessarily against parachurch organizations, but the things we need for our spiritual growth is faithful preaching and faithful people to attend that faithful preaching. That is what God has called us to do. And thankfully, we can do that in Christ. And even when we fail in that very thing, there is mercy and forgiveness in him. Henry says, note, when we are under the convictions of sin and the corrections of the rod, our business is to seek God's face. You've been convicted of your sin. Seek God's face in Christ. We must desire the knowledge of him and an acquaintance with him that he may manifest himself to us and for us in token of his being at peace with us. 
And it may reasonably be expected that affliction will bring those to God that had long gone astray from him and kept at a distance. Therefore, God for a time turns away from us that he may turn us to himself and then turn to us. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. There is mercy and forgiveness with our God. We must be aware of spiritual defilement and how desensitizing sin is. So that's spiritual defilement. Let's then look secondly at political downfall, verses 8 through 15. I struggled to name this, by the way, how to structure it, what's going on. But political downfall does seem to be in view. What they're doing spiritually has an impact with what's going to happen to their cities. And warfare is involved in chapters, uh, chapter 5, verses 8 through 15. So political downfall. And what we need to see in verses 8 and 9 is how fear-inducing judgment is. <laughs> Wonderful on a Sunday night. How fear-inducing judgment is. So political, military emphasis involved here. And notice the invader is near. It could perhaps be Assyria, possible invasion in view. Or it could be a civil war in view. And I perhaps take the civil war, but I'm not going to die on that hill. But notice, blow the ram's horn in Gibeah. These are all cities near or around Benjamin. The trumpet in Ramah, cry aloud at Beth-Avon, look behind you, O Benjamin. The reason it's fear-inducing is because these instruments don't typically have range. It means the enemy is like right there, (laughs) crying aloud. The horn is, it means it's close. It means that warfare is near. It has come. Be aware and be on guard, but you really have no time to Run, And perhaps this is an indication of the conflict that has happened between the north and the south. It could be the case that Benjamin changed allegiances, possibly that Benjamin was the buffer between the north and the south. Benjamin is typically uh, connected to the southern kingdom, but sometimes that would be the place where warfare would happen when there is this civil war that occurs. And so there is a civil war in Judges 20. If you will follow the McShane, you would have read that today. Uh, But in Judges 20, when that civil war happens, guess where it happens? At Gibeah, in Benjamin, because of all the wickedness that occurs in Gibeah with the Levite and his concubine, what the Gibeonites do to that concubine. And so Gibeah is not a great place to be. And so perhaps that is in view here. In Gibeah, in Ramah, in Beth-Avon, look behind you, O Benjamin. There's some tough things about verse 8, but warfare is in view. Perhaps civil warfare is in view. There's going to be political downfall that happens. And Ephraim, verse 9, shall be desolate in the day of rebuke. Among the tribes of Israel, I make known what is sure. So not just civil war involved, but also Ephraim being brought to nothing. And that language of rebuke does have curse overtones. The curses in Deuteronomy 27. The curses in Leviticus 26. What's going to happen if the people do not do what Yahweh says? They're going to be destroyed. They're going to be sent into captivity. God has warned them. Israel shall be desolate in that day. They shall be brought low. So judgment is fear inducing. There it is. It's close by. Cry aloud. Blow the ram's horn. The trumpet and rhema look behind you. O Benjamin, your day of doom has arrived. 
And then verses 10 through 14, we see how relentless judgment is. Again, some tough stuff here, but we see not just Ephraim's wickedness, but Judah's as well. And so in verse 10, the princes of Judah are like those who remove a landmark. Certainly one who removes the landmark was to be cursed, according to Deuteronomy 27. That is, you're not supposed to steal someone else's land. It could, not, it could, all, it could refer not just to one's actual personal property, but also um, your uh, fellow tribes' properties as well, the fellow tribes' inheritances. And so it probably has this indication that the, the civil war, as it was occurring, that as Judah and the, the northern kingdom Israel fought, that they fought over one another's inheritances. Rather than spreading God's glory to the ends of the earth, they had infighting. That's kind of too bad, isn't it? Infighting. That's probably what is in view here. They remove the landmark. They take what is not theirs, what has been given to someone else. Judah does that very thing. So Yahweh will pour out his wrath on them like water. Yahweh is going to judge them. Yahweh eventually judges them in 586. Uh, but is, Assyria gets close. Assyria gets all the way to Jerusalem uh, under Sennacherib. This is with Hezekiah. I mean, it's pretty much there's nowhere else to go for Assyria but to Jerusalem. They've taken the fortified cities. Hezekiah's got his back against the wall. What happens? He prays the Lord God most high, and the Lord God sends an angel and routes the army, right? This is in Isaiah 36 through 39, and Assyria is then pushed back. But it was close. The southern kingdom did receive a precursor to judgment in some ways by Assyria, but the full outpouring would come in 586 under Babylon. So Judah's wicked, Ephraim's wicked. I mean, they're just all wicked. Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment because he willingly walked by human precept. He followed man's rules in worship rather than Yahweh's rules in worship. But when we come to worship God most high, even for us in the church, whom do we listen to? Yahweh. He is a consuming fire. and We must worship him acceptably. We do not ask when it comes to worship. What would our fellow man want? What would be inviting for them? The thing that we ask is what does our audience want? What does Yahweh want? What is it that pleases him? That is what we must ask. And Israel did not do that because he willingly walked by human precept. Therefore, we see that relentlessness. Therefore, I will be to Ephraim like a moth that eats and you don't see. That brings decay. And to the house of Judah like rottenness that festers and builds. That's what Yahweh shall be like in his judgment upon them. And more pictures are given uh, in verses 13 and 14. A moth, well, moth and rottenness in verse 12, but a king and wounds and sickness and pus and all this sort of stuff. Verse 13, when Ephraim saw his sickness, this is the scary part. We see where Israel and Judah's trust lies. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound, that's the sad part. He knows he's hurt. She knows she's hurt. Ephraim knows. Judah knows I'm in pain. There's this wound. There's pus coming out of it. That's probably in view here, not to paint a nasty picture this evening, but that is what in view. If you're more offended by that, by the way, than the sin that Israel's engaging in or your own sin, then you need to be rebuked and have a reality, a reality check. But saw his wound and notice where they go. Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jerob. 
Who is King Jerob? There's no record of King Jerob. Probably what it means is the great king or he will contend is what Jerob means. It could mean one of two ways. So the great king, Assyria, who's ruling at this time, or he will contend. The one you go for strength, the one you go for aid is the one who's going to contend with you. And that's exactly what Yahweh does. The one whom they go to for help is the one who brings judgment upon them is the instrument God uses to judge Israel. It is Assyria, instrument in the hands of a judging God. But they go to him and notice he cannot cure you nor heal you of your wound. Sometimes the hope is, dear brethren, when it comes to say the salvation of sinners, and many of you probably have this story, is that God broke you or broke me. That's how I was saved. God broke me in my sin and showed me that I needed a savior. And that's the hope um, that we have. And the hope that uh, one way we see God saves sinners, showing them their wickedness after engaging in a lot of terrible things. And the hope is God saves them. But that isn't always the case, is it? Sometimes people are broken and Yahweh doesn't save them. And they just rail against God all the more. It really does show that salvation is a supernatural work of God. Only God can save. We are thankful that he is mighty to save. We pray that he, that he would save, but only God can save, whether it's being brought up in a Christian home or whether it's going through great, um, brought up in a Christian home, never dabbled or tested anything and God saved them. That's a good thing. But God also saved those who do dabble in things and do things that they shouldn't. God is pleased to save in many ways, but the main thing he does is he changes hearts, gives the gift of faith and repentance. But they don't know. They're in sickness, they have a wound, and yet they go to Assyria instead. And this is where Menahem comes in. Menahem pays tribute in 2 Kings 15 to uh, Poole, who is Tiglath-Pileser III. Um, Just some fun Assyrian uh, names for you. So he pays tribute to him in 2 Kings 15. Ahaz goes to uh, Assyria in Isaiah 7. They seek their faith in Assyria rather than in Yahweh, and he cannot heal. So what is Yahweh going to do? He's going to be a lion and not in a good way. I will be like a lion to Ephraim. And like a young lion to the house of Judah, I, even I, will tear them and go away. I will take them away, and no one shall rescue them. Though judgment comes from Assyria, it is Yahweh who controls everything, and it is Yahweh who is judging them through Assyria. Micaiah again says, though Tiglath-Pileser was a mighty monarch, he was still only an instrument in the hands of God. Israel's affairs were under the sovereign rule of the Lord, and as long as they continued to defy him, they would find themselves confronted by his power and determination to punish them. That's the image that the idea of moth and rottenness and the lion who rends and tears and they shall never go away pictures for us. That is what we see in verses 13 and 14, how relentless judgment is. But thankfully, we can also see in verse 15 how judgment can produce repentance. There are those times that God does break someone and he brings and gives the gift of repentance. And certainly verse 15 has redemptive historical, uh, redemptive historical emphasis in view. 
He says, I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their defense. The Lord withdraws, not for good. Uh, He's not going to come upon them for good and not going to come upon them for evil, but he's just going to withdraw. I will return again to my place like the lion going back to his den till they acknowledge their offense, till they repent, till they see their sin. And this is, again, where new covenant emphasis seems to be, or he's prophesying that, and certainly we'll see that um, next week, Lord willing, in chapter 6. But there is this promise that they acknowledge, then they will seek my face, and in their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. Israel is going to have to go into captivity, but after that captivity, a great restoration is going to happen. And it's going to be a greater restoration than Israel returning back to the land. And even as Israel returns back to the land, things are not the same. They are still awaiting a king. And thankfully, that king comes in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he does so through a difficult, serious exile that he gives to Israel. St. Cyril of Alexandria says, you see just as bodily ailments that do not respond to mild remedies are often overcome by fire and knife in the same manner. And for the same reason, in my view, the passions ingrained in human souls do not yield that do not yield to positive advice and are not overcome by sensible thinking, give way to hardship, scourging and unbearable calamities. People sent into captivity and when subjected to distress then he is saying will they seek my face people without awareness even Cyril noticed that people lack uh, self-awareness without awareness have little appreciation of their prosperity when good things are within their grasp but we come to these things with a keener desire if we have been deprived of the objects of our deepest longings and gain a powerful and irresistible sense of loss. God breaks, God brings down, God shows us our sin, but he shows us our need for Christ. Or as Thomas Watson says, till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And thankfully, the purpose of this judgment here is that redemption and repentance would come, that the people of God would seek his face. And the one in whom we seek God's face is in the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? And as we've seen throughout these verses, we really do see how total sin and judgment is. God is going to punish sin as a righteous, just God. But thankfully, we also see how total and complete salvation is. What Christ has done for wretches like you and I, we could talk about the different language when it comes to the atoning work of our Savior, reconciliation, redemption, propitiation. We can talk about the application of Christ's benefits by the Spirit with what we need. Think about the hard heart, brethren. What do we need? A new heart. What does the Spirit do? The Spirit is poured out and gives us a new heart, according to Ezekiel 36 with John 3. When it comes to our sin, we are guilty before God Most High, and so what do we need? We need to be justified. 
We need to be righteous in God's sight. We need a righteousness that is not our own. And where do we get that? From Jesus Christ and his perfect righteousness imputed to us. When it comes to our person and being corrupted in our sin, what do we then need? Cleansing. We need sanctification. We need to be set apart. And that's exactly what we have with the doctrine of sanctification. Justification uh, gives us what we need with respect to our guilt. Sanctification gives us what we need with respect to our corruption. Brethren, there is still remaining corruption. One day that shall be gone. One day we shall only be able to do what is right in God's sight. But God has given us all that we need. All that Christ has done on the cross is total. The judgment he had poured out upon him is total. And the benefits he's given to us when it comes to our salvation, he has provided for us all that we need. We deserve everlasting death, and yet we have everlasting life. And it's all because of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He really is all that we need. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God, we truly do not understand how serious our sin is, and yet we are thankful that you often remind us of this in your word concerning uh, Israel, concerning what they were engaging in, concerning their spiritual adultery and actual adultery and bloodshed and their ignorance. We know that sin defiles. We know that sin brings misery. We know that sin uh, brings ignorance and blinds and hardens. And yet we are thankful so much for the salvation you have given. Thank you for the Savior who is our Christ. Thank you that though you were an enemy to us, you made us your friends through reconciliation. Though we were once slaves to sin, you have redeemed us uh, from our sin. You've redeemed us from the curse of the law. Though your wrath was once poured out upon us, we are thankful for that propitiation of our Lord and Savior who has turned away your wrath. And we know that we were once hard in our hearts, and yet you have given us new hearts by your spirit through the gospel as it is proclaimed. Thank you that you've done such a thing. We know that we were once guilty, and now we are not guilty. Thank you for justification. We know that we uh, were corrupt, and we know that we are now being sanctified and have been set apart as your people. And we know that we, even though this flesh that we live in now is decaying and shall pass away, we know that we need a heavenly body. And we're thankful that Christ is that pledge for us in heaven. And thank you there is that promise that we shall rise again. Thank you that your salvation that you've given to wretches like us is total. And thank you that we who were once um, dead in our trespasses and sins have been made alive. We who were once deserving and still are deserving of everlasting death. We are thankful we have everlasting life in the Lord Jesus Christ. So please help us to be watchful. Please make us aware of our own remaining problems and sins and be watchful against them. And if we do sin, help us to remember that you are a God we can come to, a Father we can come to, and you forgive us and give us the strength that we need. And we pray if there are any here today who do not know you, please save their souls. Please give them new life. Help them to see how vile and awful and damning sin is, but help them to see the remedy in the Lord Jesus Christ. And may they see him by faith. And we do pray in all things you would be glorified. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. And we pray that you be glorified in all things. And we pray these things in the name of